Introducing MyHoover. Through this new feature, you can now more easily follow the work of your favorite fellows and policy topics. Customize your newsfeed, manage newsletter subscriptions, and receive notifications when your favorite publications, broadcasts, and podcasts go live. Bookmark articles, essays, and multimedia for later viewing. Take the step to create a MyHoover account now and transform the way in which you acquire this valuable knowledge. Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. Tuesday, January the 9th, 2024, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Institution Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, which means I have the great honor of introducing the stars of our show, three of my colleagues we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist, former presidential national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution's senior fellows all. Gentlemen, first a belated happy 2024. I hope you all had a good holiday break. First, let's turn our attention to the Middle East. And H.R., I want to start with you. Since the last time we did this show, there have been more developments in that corner of the world. Israel's resumed its search and destroy mission against Hamas. Who knows how long that will continue? Uh, we've seen U.S. air and drone strikes in Iraq targeting pro-Iran forces, which in turn have been targeting U.S. forces. Uh, we saw a bombing in Iran, which uh, ISIS took credit for. Uh, Israel took out a Hamas leader in Lebanon. Hezbollah turned around and fired rockets in Israel. And meanwhile, HR, we have the situation in the Red Sea with Houthi rebels who are firing drones and attacking ships transiting the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Uh, they've also fired against U.S. warships, which are fired in return. The U.S. now saying that the Houthis, quote, bear the consequences, HR, of further attacks, which sounds to me like a red line being drawn in the Red Sea. HR have now laid out uh, military actions to the west of Israel, the north of Israel, the east of Israel, the south of Israel. As you look at that map, what concerns you most in terms of this war escalating? Well, it, it already has escalated, and it's going to escalate more. And, and I think that's what we're going to see in, in, in this next year, because what you're seeing is on, on just after the third anniversary of the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas in Baghdad, uh, you're seeing the plan that Qasem Soleimani put into place. You know, you're seeing the activation of the so-called ring of fire around Israel. Israel's fighting essentially a five-front war uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, in, in Syria uh, against a proxy army that Iran has uh, assembled there. Uh, and in southern Lebanon uh, against Hezbollah and a kind of a longer range fight as the Houthis are launching drones and and missiles uh, from Yemen that have been supplied, obviously, by the by the Iranians. So it's already a five front four for Israel. But what you're seeing is a connection across the region to what Soleimani has done in the so-called forward defense strategy, which is really a forward offense strategy in an effort to keep the entire Middle East enmeshed in conflict. It to, so 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 Iran's uh, neighbors can be perpetually weakened, and Iran can can pursue its its, its hegemonic uh, agenda across the region. That involves pushing the United States out, 
And and one of the one of the actions you, you didn't uh, mention, or maybe you did, Bill, but you went through them quickly. That was an excellent summary. Is is the strike uh, a, against a, a a militia leader, Iran militia leader in Baghdad, and right. and what you've seen is an intensification of the of actions on the part of Iranian pro, Iranian proxies uh, against U.S. forces across the region. Uh, over a hundred attacks in in, in the last uh, ninety days. Uh, as as well as political actions by an increasingly uh, sectarian Shia dominated government that's going to further alienate the Sunni Arab population and I think lead to a return of large scale sectarian warfare uh, in in Iraq, which Iran I think thinks is is in its interest because it keeps that neighbor perpetually weak. The other big threat is to the Kurds uh, and, and the Kurdish regional government uh, in Iraq. So I could go on and on about this. But it, it's going to escalate because you know who's going to escalate it is Iran. And they're continuing to escalate it in large measure because we keep saying every time we do respond, oh, but we don't want it to escalate, which to Iran is, hey, we've got permission to escalate them with impunity because that's what Iran, the only thing Iran fears is escalation based on our recognition that the return address is Tehran. So I, I think what's going to happen is the Biden administration, despite their deep reluctance to do it, is going to conclude that they have to respond directly against uh, Iran. And, and I think if they're smart, uh, they'll take advantage of the opportunity uh, to, to accomplish a range of objectives, uh, which would include setting back their missile and nuclear program at the same time. But I think that in the next year, you know, I know we're going to do predictions at the end, but I'm telling you, um, it's, 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 not a, it's not a hard prediction to make that this war is going to expand horizontally and I think also vertically in terms of of, uh, of U.S. direct action against Iran. Mm-hmm. I agree with uh, nearly everything that HR said, except the last thing. I don't think the Biden administration will at any point uh, rise to the challenge that Iran poses. I think they've consistently pursued a policy of appeasement. Uh, they embarked on, to my mind, the unhinged strategy of trying to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal. They did everything to encourage Iran, uh, to ease the financial pressure on it. And they are, I think, uh, reaping uh, the predictable harvest. I don't think they're about to change and get tough. Uh, And I think as a result, uh, what we should expect in the next couple of months is uh, a showdown between Israel and uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, and once again, I, I expect that the uh, U.S. administration will uh, blow hot and cold. It might talk tough, but it won't do anything that really seriously hurts Iran. And that's going to leave a, a Israel in quite a weak uh, and vulnerable position because it will then have uh, presumably the remnants of Hamas still to contend with uh, in Gaza. Uh, it will have a very heavily armed Hezbollah in Lebanon that it will have to, to deal with instability in the West Bank and all the other issues that HR so eloquently outlined. So I fear that this ongoing weak strategy uh, of the Biden administration, which will continue throughout this year, will create uh, a very, very unstable situation and one that will be very dangerous for Israel. Mm-hmm. John? I would add it seems to be a, um, a larger strategy, a larger habit uh, Ukraine, uh, well, um, we don't want to escalate. We don't want to provoke. We've basically uh, gone to, uh, you know, um, Putin gets to keep the parts he invaded, and and that's stalemated because we didn't want to escalate or provoke. 
here too. That seems to be the, the mantra, don't escalate, don't provoke. Even to the point, you know, the Houthis sh uh, shoot missiles uh, into ships in the Red Sea, and we defend against the missiles, but we don't even shoot back to where the missiles were launched. In, in HR, you want to go right to Iran, but let's just start with, you know, yeah. how about where those missiles got launched? We send one back, yeah. which we're not even doing. And there's the, 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 you know, this is part of the larger retreat around the world. You know, why are the Houthis still there? Uh, that that was a new one for me in the last week. Think, you know, we've we've retreated in Ukraine. We want to just stop stop in Israel and and um, uh, you know not escalate that. Um, isn't the most effective strategy against escalation at some point that you gotta fight back, and at some point that your objective is to win, not just to well you guys can have the latest one. Let's not escalate it, and that habit of mind is the thing, uh, the one that I think uh, worries me the most. But it doesn't have to go HR. You know, you, you say go straight to Iraq and I'm uh, sorry, to Iran. And I go, huh. Uh, but at, at least we could start um, fighting back in the small parts. And it also strikes me this this obsession with the nuclear deal. This is something we've talked about many times before. Why was the negotiation, we'll negotiate entirely about your nukes, but we're not going to even talk about your missiles, and we're not going to even talk about your uh, terrorist activities throughout the Middle East. You know, perhaps if the negotiations had been, forget about the nukes, uh, but we really, really mad about this stuff, uh, that might have been more more productive. HR? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree with all that, and and I think what you're seeing is is that the perception of weakness is what is actually provocative here, and and uh, and you know the the Biden administration, in addition to not enforcing you know the the sanctions on Iran, which resulted in the transfer of some people think about eighty billion dollars to Iran, which guess where that went? It immediately went to to funding their their proxy wars and and funding groups like the like Houthis and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and and Hezbollah. Uh, the Biden administration undesignated the Houthis as a terrorist organization um, when, when it came in as part of this effort, you know, to, to revive the nuclear deal uh, by by making the Iranians uh, feel as if we're trying to conciliate with one, one of their proxy forces uh, and under really this effort to try to negotiate uh, and end and end to the and end to the war in Yemen, but of course you know this idea that you can just negotiate and you see this with the president's recent statements about uh, about Israeli operations in, in Gaza uh, and and get it as an acceptable outcome without first changing the reality on the ground militarily is a, it's crazy it's a pipe dream. I mean Israel has no option but to destroy uh, Hamas at this stage. And as Neil's already alluded to, I, I agree, Neil. I think they've already made a decision, Israeli leaders have already made a decision to reinvade southern Lebanon because because I think they've recognized they cannot have you know, a hostile force you know, like Hamas or the much more capable Hezbollah uh, directly on their borders. And remember, they've, they've already evacuated, I think about 90,000 people, is it, uh, Neil and John, uh, you know, out, uh, out of the uh, the border areas with Lebanon? You know, th those are families they want to get back, you know, and, and, and the only way to do it really with any uh, degree of security is going to is is going to strip is, is to strip Hezbollah's capabilities uh, out of southern Lebanon, and and I know the U.S. government is trying to do everything they can to negotiate an alternative to that, but that's not going to work you know, because of the nature of Hezbollah, you know, and and so I I think that again it, it, it's almost as if we believe that we can negotiate a favorable outcome uh, without imposing costs as you're suggesting, John, on these uh, the, these adversaries and enemies. That are that go beyond the cost they factor in when they make their decision uh, to to conduct these aggressive acts. I think uh, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt said, uh, "Speak softly and carry a big stick." 
we're, we're in the uh, speak loudly. Uh, I guess we have a big stick, but we left it at home, so it's not going to get used. I do want to ask you, HR, and, and Neil, um, the day after, uh, our official rhetoric is, oh, back to the two-state solution, which I remember from when I first read about it at the age of about 16 in the 1970s. And the, and the, the premise that uh, Palestinians have to have their own state before there can be any peace, and that that state will be run by either the Palestinian Authority or Hamas or some of the two that we enshrine this terrorist dictatorship as part of it. That seems like going nowhere. I don't know why we repeat it over and over again. But uh, the day after seems like the day after, the week after, the decade after seems like a big question that that I don't have a good answer to. Do you guys have any sort of good answer to? Well, I think if you talk to Israelis, there's not a great deal of uh, belief left in a two-state solution. Uh, in the case of Gaza, uh, there are now plans being discussed uh, that would uh, perhaps resuscitate what's left of the Palestinian Authority. To me, Palestinian Authority is now an oxymoron. Uh, <clears throat> it's clear that uh, the IDF has no desire to have some permanent occupation uh, of Gaza. Uh, nobody has a great idea in answer to your question, uh, John. Uh, because the one-state solution doesn't look viable either. Uh, and, and so I think we have to recognize that the notion of a day after is itself a rather questionable one, because uh, it's not like there will be an end to the conflict uh, if Hamas is destroyed in, in, in Gaza. There will then be the question of Hezbollah, and there are questions beyond that. Uh, so I, I, I wish a day after war were conceivable at this point, but I must say I don't think it's conceivable under the present geopolitical dispensation, as long as there is a weak administration in Washington uh, that doesn't have a credible commitment uh, to uh, not just containing but weakening Iran, the Middle East is not going to have a day after. It's going to be in a permanent state of conflict. Well, and the US is not great at giving advice on we're great at how to invade countries and win wars. Well done, HR, but we're not real great on how to immediately turn it over to uh, a, a peaceful authority. I think we we lost one and a half that way. Mm -hmm. um, and but except we did it in Germany and Japan, and that's the only out outcome I can see is a uh, uh, Israel and as many Arab countries it gets together has a military occupation, cleans it out. It's going to be except the problem is there's going to be uh, the same people who are funneling hundreds of billions of dollars to Hamas now are going to be trying to funnel hundreds of millions of dollars in to keep the uh, terrorist, terrorist attack going. So that seems like the only intermediate step, but uh, even that one doesn't seem easy. I would say that the, the Trump administration, which you served in HR, had a much better strategy. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a strategy that was to improve relations between Israel and the Arab states, isolate uh, and penalize uh, Iran and build a, a peace in the Middle East in which the Palestinians were not the central question anymore. And I thought that that actually went far better than uh, anybody writing for the New York Times gave it credit for. And, and one could hope that such a strategy could be resumed uh, in 2025. Yeah, and I would add the Palestinians quietly get rich. Uh, the Palestinians quietly get, get better. Their life gets quietly better, better jobs in Israel, better exports until they don't need Hamas, which is exactly why Hamas blew that all up. I'm sorry, HR, go ahead. 
No, I was just, I was just going to say that what's really critical is to is to trace the grievances of the Palestinian people back to Hamas, and and I think you know, if Israel made a big you know error uh, in the lead up to this, it was the you know the deliberate weakening of the Palestinian Authority through in in some ways the toleration of 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 uh, of Hamas in Gaza. Um, Gaza was always the argument, you know, against any kind of progress toward a two-state solution because Israel quite rightly said, hey, you know, how, how can we accept the risk of the West Bank also becoming like Gaza? And, and they couldn't give up security responsibility for the West Bank because of that because of that fear and, and, and legitimate concern. With Hamas gone, what happens is there has to be some political authority there that has a degree of legitimacy and trust of the population such that the population believes its interests can be advanced through some kind of a political process and representation. And there has to be a legitimate security force that's that's trusted by the majority of the of the population. You know, the IDF can't fulfill that role. They're going to have to occupy it for a while. I don't think there's any way around it. But there has to be some kind of a multinational peace enforcement force until a Palestinian force could be generated like you know the the ones that that we were on the way to, to generating on the on the in the West Bank and and so I I agree Neil that I think a, one way to work on this is to go back to the outside in approach I think Iran is in our corner on that in terms of convincing uh, Arab uh, partners in in the, in the region that their interests are aligned with us and and with Israel in, in connection with the Iranian threat but also what the Trump administration delivered uh, what Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt delivered was really the last best chance for the Palestinians for, for a two-state solution. Maybe that could be resurrected at some point, a decade, I don't know, in, in, in the future. Uh, but it was it was much pilloried because the Palestinians didn't participate in it. Uh, but it was, I think, the, it was a deal that could be palatable potentially uh, to, to the Israelis. And therefore, if the Palestinians say, hey, what, what, has, what, what has Hamas given us? They've given us hell, right? Is there an alternative? Well, you know, Gaza is on the Mediterranean Ocean. You know, tens and tens of billions of dollars have flow have have gone into into Gaza, but been diverted into Hamas's terrorist infrastructure and capabilities. So there is an alternative future, and I, I think that's going to have to be communicated to the to the Palestinian people. I've been encouraged, and I know this is just anecdotal, but by some of the, the stories of of Palestinians who are now clearly blaming Hamas. And then also those who have been clearly under the duress of Hamas, you know, like an imam uh, recently uh, who was captured by Hamas because he wouldn't uh, spout their pro their propaganda. Now, it's a tall order, you know, for the IDF, especially after all these casualties in Gaza. But I think that getting more depth, you know, at, at information operations and tracing grievances back to the population. And we have a role in that, too, I think. The United States has a role in that, too. And, and I, I think that uh, we could do a much better job. Yeah, the, the Dubai on the Mediterranean. Let me end this with a very quick exit question for the three of you. Uh, we are nine days into the new year. Uh, there is a war in the Middle East that looks like it's expanding. There is a brutal war in Ukraine that could potentially expand across Eastern Europe. And in a few days, Taiwan chooses a new president. Who knows what that brings? Question for the three of you. As we move through 2024, is it more fashionable to talk about Cold War II or World War III? Well, I'll go first since I think I pioneered the term Cold War II. I think uh, we're in it. Uh, I think we've kind of gone from the Korean War phase, which I would say is the the war in Ukraine, uh, quite quickly to the Cuban Missile Crisis phase. If I uh, am right, the Taiwanese election could furnish a pretext for Xi Jinping 
to to at the very least stage a major demonstration of Chinese uh, air and naval power, uh, uh, perhaps even to to impose some kind of uh, of blockade or partial blockade. And then we really will be in a 1962-like situation. Uh, so I, I think that's the right analogy. But the reason World War III is a less likely outcome is, as was true during the first Cold War, the consequences of a world war between nuclear armed superpowers are so difficult to, to fathom, so horrific to contemplate, uh, that there is a much greater deterrent uh, to direct war between superpowers than there was in 1914 or 1939. Uh, so I think we, we, as in 1962, are going to have a showdown over Taiwan at some point. I don't think it will turn into World War III because the costs would just be unacceptably high for both the United States and China. John, what say you? Uh, yeah, we're in maybe the phase, the combination Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, little proxy wars uh, all, all over the world, uh, which we're not really recognizing our our wars i mean ukraine is not about the ukrainians it's it's about us and i agree with neil some sort of provocation over taiwan is going to happen you know if, if we're not willing to strike back at houthi rebels um firing rockets to ships you know uh i i don't see that uh we would effectively fight a war over taiwan so it's one more retreat with the u.s um but world every neil's got to do when you're fighting with uh, nation states that are, you know, faintly rational like China, we're not going to have an all-on nuclear exchange with China. Um, something could blow up in the Middle East. A nuclear weapon could well blow up in one of these parts of the world, but that's not World War III. And so I, steady retreat of the U.S. in Cold War II is what I'm sort of seeing, sadly. HR, you get the last word. Yeah, I think I think the perception of weakness is provocative, and I think if you look at the combination of of the, uh, you know, the 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 I think the paltry response, you know, to to all all different forms of Iranian aggression in the Middle East, as as maybe encouraging to Xi Jinping, as well as kind of the the tumult that some people expect in our own elections, you know, at least the you know the vitriolic discourse, partisan discourse associated uh, with with our election, and I'm thinking of another analogy. Neil, I don't know if you'd agree with this. Maybe the Berlin crisis analogy of, uh, under Kennedy. You know, after after the meeting at Munich, when when uh, he appears, you know, he appears weak in this in, in that meeting, and and uh, and the Kremlin uh, decides to ramp up pressure uh, on uh, on West Berlin. And I, I think that's something that we might see something like that. You know, uh, on Taiwan soon after the election, especially if there's a DPP victory. But I just did. Um... Our election is the one to worry about. We are heading into an absolute chaos, disastrous chaos of an election, uh, just like lemmings heading over the cliff, uh, unable to stop what is what is going to be an absolute uh, disaster. And and uh, everybody around the world will, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity if you want to cause mischief around the world, because the U.S. is going to be tearing itself apart until uh, for quite a while, even after the election, actually, even at the election after the election is when the the real the the the, the legal battles and the resistance and all the rest of it uh, kicks in. For the record, I beg General McMaster to run. He continues to say no. So this one's on you, HR. Uh, a viewer note, by the way, we're going to have Dan Senior on our show in early February. If you are interested in the Middle East, Israel in particular, I highly recommend his excellent Call Me Back podcast, which I know Neil and HR have been a frequent guest on. So make a note of that. So gentlemen, let's move on to our second topic, and that is the demise of Claudine Gay. 
Um, a day after we recorded our last show, this was with Barry Weiss in mid-December, the Harvard Corporation issued a statement unanimously affirming its support for Claudine Gay at the time the school's embattled president. Exactly three weeks later, she offered her resignation uh, out of a job after only 186 days on it, the shortest term president in Harvard history. Um, by now, you probably know the details, the allegations of plagiarism, her poor performance in front of Congress, not standing up against anti-Semitism. We ask this question to the three of you, as you all have taught in universities and well are familiar with university affairs. Neil H.R. John, what is the teachable moment here? Well, perhaps I should go first, as I spent uh, 12 years of my life uh, as a Harvard professor. Uh, I think the teachable moment should be, this isn't all about Harvard. The, the crisis in American higher education is coast to coast. Uh, it's in red states and blue states. Uh, there's a major crisis in the way that uh, American universities are run. Some of us have been talking about it for close to a decade. It took October the 7th and the uh, pusillanimous response of various uh, university presidents, including Claudine Gay, to bring it to the attention of people outside academia uh, and that was probably the only good thing to come of October the 7th. Uh, I would make a, a couple of, of simple points. Getting rid of uh, a university president here, a university president there, doesn't really fix anything. Because the ideology that has permeated U.S. universities, you can call it what you like, wokeism or diversity, equity and inclusion or anti-racism or all the rest of these things, which together constitute a kind of... Uh, a progressive orthodoxy, this permeates every level of the educational system. Indeed, it extends beyond universities, right down to the humblest uh, primary school. And it's not just in the president's office uh, or the provost's office. It's there in a bureaucracy that every university has allowed to uh, proliferate of Title IX officers, diversity officers, and the rest. Uh, and so there's a fundamental structural problem that is going to require much, much more than new presidents at Harvard or MIT, or for that matter, Stanford. It's going to need a fundamental root and branch transformation of university governance. The second point I would make is that most people don't fully understand what's wrong with university governance because they don't realize why it's been possible for a minority of very politicized activists to take so much power in academia in a relatively short time. And that's why I've been so involved in creating a new university in Texas at Austin to try to show that there's a better way of running a university. And the new constitution that we published at the end of last year shows what you need to prevent this from happening at all universities is some kind of judicial branch that upholds principles like the Chicago principles or even better principles than those when a university president or a bureaucracy or the tenured faculty decide to go down the woke road. If you don't have something to uphold your principles, it's highly likely that they will be overridden by one or other of those elements. I hope, therefore, the teachable moment is not that Claudine Gay was a bad person or a bad, uh, a bad president. The teachable moment is that American education's broken and it needs a fundamental restructuring to get fixed. John? Here, here, Neil. <laughs> Let me uh, plug slightly. I wrote two, uh, two blog posts on this in the last couple of days. 
And I also very much enjoyed John McWhorter's op-ed in the New York Times uh, on just what is DEI. It is still, it's beginning to be recognized, but e e even still people don't, outside the university, don't really understand how deeply taken over the university has been. Our university, Harvard, all the major universities stand at a crossroads. Are we here for meritocracy, search for truth, academic freedom, open debate, uh, understanding how the world works and passing on those values to the next generation? Or is the purpose of the university activism in, in, in furtherance of a political goal and self-purification, getting rid of everybody who doesn't like that political goal? That is the question. And it's a, that's the deep question. It's the latter has taken over universities and it is a cancer in every branch of how they work. Uh, what needs to be done is not just get rid of a president, what needs to be done is uh, to, to, to root that out and fix it or give up and start new institutions. You asked for a teachable moment, and I, I thought a great one uh, came in the New York Times coverage of uh, exactly uh, how the process. Um, and it was said is that uh, after the Harvard uh, uh, Corporation uh, issued a letter supporting gay, they got together and said, okay, what are we going to do to fix this now? Right. So if there was a discussion. How do we fix this? And uh, Penny Pritzker and Claudine D.A. agreed that what we'll do is there will be in the spring a, uh, a a big plan to a plan. So Gay would get together with her staff, lots of staff, to have a plan to have open office hours and listening moments where she could demonstrate empathy. Entirely internal, lots of bureaucracy, a plan, many memos uh, sent out. This is exactly what's wrong with major universities. And that's why I actually think Flooding was a great president. She was exactly what Harvard wanted. She knows how to make plans to demonstrate empathy and have listening moments. That's how things used to run. It's uh, just that the job description really needs to change. HR, what's your teachable moment? Well, you know, in the in the military, war is the great auditor of the institution, and it was after it was it was after um, Vietnam when uh, officers in, in the army in, in particular uh, came together to fundamentally reform the institution uh, based on you know personnel policies and a strategy for the war that was destructive you know to the uh, to the army and to its professional military ethic and it began really with a study of professionalism that was commissioned at at the army war college and and what you began to see emerge is is a coalition of reform minded officers who affected a renaissance uh, in the army in the in the in the 1970s and and into the 1980s, and went from a, a, an army that had been really destroyed in areas of discipline and leader development and low levels of training and and was really lacking in modernization and so forth, um, uh, and and was still a draft force into the, into a very high quality all volunteer force. So it, it takes leadership. It takes a coalition of leaders. Uh, who are determined to affect the kind of root and branch uh, change that that Neil has alluded to, and and uh, and I think that there's an opportunity to at least begin that work now, because it's okay now, you know, to to question these orthodoxies. I mean, it has to be okay, uh, and and uh, and and of course, the greatest defense of those for, by those who don't want to change a damn thing and want to want to continue to to capture higher education with this these reified philosophies and. And, um, and 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 progressive ideology is that if you questioned it, you were automatically racist. When in fact, you know, this ideology ideology is in itself racist. <laughs> so I think I think at least now, um, maybe more people have permission, you know, or at least the latitude 
uh, to question these ideologies without immediately being labeled a racist. Mm -hmm. Question to the three of you. So Harvard, Penn, and Stanford are currently looking for new presidents. Do you expect their choices to be more of the same? In other words, someone like Claudine Gay, who is very much a showcase of DEI, or do you expect the schools to move in a different direction and choose a president who doesn't necessarily drink the Kool-Aid? Well, that's key. I mean, it'll be a signal of whether the Harvard Corporation is serious about reforming uh, Harvard if it if it uh, can appoint somebody who who is out of this now uh, familiar mold. And I, I hope that the Stanford trustees are uh, are having a similarly uh, uh, broadly uh, framed discussion. Why should the president of a university be an academic? Uh, you can, uh, I think, see a very good example uh, in Florida right now, uh, where a former senator uh, is proving to be uh, uh, really rather effective president. So I think uh, looking outside the academy would be uh, no bad thing. It would also be good if people were considered who were not necessarily signed up uh, liberals. Uh, we we have as a director of uh, the Hoover Institution somebody who really uh, could be one of the great presidents of Stanford, and it's a mystery to me uh, why uh, Condoleezza Rice is not the first choice uh, to be uh, the successor to Mark Tessier Levine. So yeah, not necessarily academics, people with some real world experience. Hey, HR, have you considered this possibility as a career move? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Brett, HR, I there's mean, no problem you can't solve with a tank. <laughs> Managing the different constituencies of recalcitrant faculty and and uh, and and uh, and then also uh, angry uh, alumni and and uh, and various student organizations. Sure, yeah, sign me up for that program. <laughs> You've dealt with tougher foes. HR would take the presidency only if he had me to start his car and taste his food. I think that would be the arrangement. But John, why don't you have the last word here? Are you, are you hopeful you think we'll move away from DEI or do you see more of the same? Uh, I, I don't think so. So you need to not just appoint a president. You need to give that president a mandate. Right. <clears throat> and so I have not seen from the, the, the Harvard board has not resigned en masse. And they have not said, oh, my God, what I just said about this, you know, what the university wants to do. I gather the Harvard faculty all thought Claudine Gay's um, sh shocking uh, letter in the New York Times about uh, all the horrible things that happened to her. Uh, they all thought that was brilliant. <laughs> so the power structures in the university that want to keep this game going are very, very strong. Uh, the people who think we need to really root it out are, are all outsiders, and they're not even on the boards right now. Yeah, if you look at the committee, the 20 person committee that Stanford has put together to appoint a new president, uh, that committee is not going to come up with not even just a name of someone who's faintly conservative, but a mandate you to be a president and to fire the DEI office and fire the Title IX office. You need mandate uh, because there's so many political structures out there against you. And with the faculty against you, the students against you, the, the bureaucracy against you, the, the unionized everybody against you, and still most of the board of directors against you. Uh, I think they're just going to try to appoint uh, someone who can try to make it go away and, and the rot will continue. Uh, the fight will go on, <laughs> uh, but it, it will not be what we're looking for. So with two Ivy presidents currently out of a job, that means there is 25% unemployment within the ranks of the eight Ivy League presidencies. 
far above the natural average for unemployment. But, John Crockham, why don't we use that as a segue, an awkward segue, if you will, into the economy. Let's talk about economics for a few minutes. Uh, I'd like to turn your attention, John, to something that our uh, good fellow's uh, friend Tyler Cowen recently wrote, and I'm going to quote and read it to you. This is not, talking about 2024, this is not slated to be a terrible year, Tyler wrote. We have, in fact, actually licked inflation without a recession, which was a shock to many economists. The global order is possibly stabilizing somewhat compared to the last 12 months. The U.S. economy is highly innovative in artificial intelligence in the biomedical area, and there's a fair amount to be happy about. Tyler adds, but predictions are tough. Keep in mind that one out of every six years, the U.S. economy, you know, might be in recession. There's always a chance of that, but so far, so good. What say you, John? So I do think we we pay too much attention to recessions uh, as opposed to long-term growth. Um, it's like it's 1933 all over again. Um, uh, the question for the U.S. is 20 years from now, do we look like Argentina? Uh, or 20 years from now, do, do, we, uh, do we grow? Um, with that said, uh, yes, it's very interesting that we haven't had a recession, the most widely predicted recession ever. I just came back from the uh, social science meetings, the American Economic Association meetings. I, went to a panel on why was there inflation? Why is it going away? Why wasn't there a recession? And I can report that nobody knows. <laughs> well, everybody knows. Uh, I think my presentation was, look, fiscal theory, the price level is working perfectly. Uh, I convinced absolutely nobody uh, of that proposition. Uh, but I think it's worth everybody understanding. If you think there's a technical expertise here, uh, this is an exciting moment to do research in economics because there isn't much consensus. But the question we're asking is sort of what's the working out of the dynamics? Uh, I don't see a reason for a recession next year. Uh, inflation will probably stick around for a while because deficits are high. The question for economics is the next shock, not sort of what are the dynamics as they work themselves out. And, and you can see all sorts of bad things uh, potentially happening in the world. All the bad things we talk about lead to the next shock. So a possibility is that it's like late 1975, inflation goes down, we slowly recover, and then the next bad thing happens out of the Middle East. The longer run question is the race between Tyler's techno-optimism, which I share. There's all sorts of great new stuff in, in AI and computing and biology and everything else, uh, and the forces in America that want to turn us into Argentina in, in both parties the forces who want protectionism, uh, regulation, uh, unions, crony capitalism, and so forth, which can just stifle that long-term growth. Mm -hmm. Neil, what are you looking at economically right now? Well, I, first of all, don't agree with Tyler that the global order is stabilizing somewhat. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know where he gets that from. But I, I, miss, I must have missed that. Uh, second point is, uh, you know, monetary policy acts with, quote, long and variable lags. And I don't think we have passed the point at which we can say there's not going to be a recession. Uh, indeed, I think it will look very embarrassing indeed for some economists who've uh, shouted that uh, team transitory has triumphed if uh, if we now find ourselves with a hard landing. And that's not inconceivable. Uh, there is still a whole lot of problems on the balance sheets of uh, American banks. Uh, why did we not have a recession in 2023? I think the answer to that has to be that all that money got th that got thrown at households in the pandemic left them with a lot of spending power. Uh, and that spending power propelled the US economy through the rate hikes of 2022-23 in ways that almost all economists underestimated. But that doesn't mean that this goes on indefinitely. The slowdown is there. Uh, it, it's already palpable in at least some of the data. And at some point, you've spent down all that money uh, that you got handed by the government. So I'm not ready to declare 
that the recession uh, alert is over. I also am not ready to declare that inflation has been licked, to quote Tyler. Really? It really it would only take one other major shock uh, that might, uh, for example, propel oil prices upwards for that not to be true. So I think it's way too early for the uh, the famous team transitory to declare victory and say, by transitory, we meant somewhat more than a year. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to watch the US economy with great interest in the coming quarters, because I don't think it's by any means guaranteed that uh, Jay Powell gets the soft landing. Yeah, HR, I note that the President of the United States has given two speeches in recent days, one in Valley Forge, which is near and dear to your heart as a Pennsylvanian. Uh, he didn't talk about the economy. What did he talk about? Threats to democracy. Right. Well, you know, I, I think that one of the biggest threats to democracy is, is, a, is a reduction of confidence, confidence in our institutions and and confidence in, in our, our government to, to actually advance the, our citizens' interests, you know. And and I, I think that you don't, you don't uh, reinstill confidence by being as partisan, and I know he's, it's an election year, uh, as as he was. And I, I just wish that really the candidates in both parties will at some stage get to the politics of addition and focus on the big issues. I mean, the, the big economic issues, I think, have you know, we, we have agency over them. And, and, and in, the, in the shocks that Neil mentioned we might we might suffer, you know, could could be lessened uh, by a real emphasis on on making our supply chains more re resilient, not through protectionist measures, but just prudent measures to recognize that single points of failure and supply chains that run through like hostile authoritarian regimes are are dangerous to our economy. Uh, and we see that with the disruption of shipping the Bob El-Mandeb as well, you know, the need for resilience in supply chains. And then what, what Neil alluded to as well, which is, is energy security, you know, what the Trump administration called energy dominance, you know, to to ensure that that we could withstand shocks to the global energy markets and and had our own degree of agency that to, so that so that OPEC didn't matter, you know, and and that uh, and and that that Vladimir Putin and others couldn't use energy supplies uh, for coercive purposes. So you know, I think we you know energy and and supply chain are related to our national security, and that's the kind of speech I'd like to hear. You know, is a, is a vision, you know, for for how you know whoever the candidate is is going to strengthen the nation, uh, you know. You know restore peace, uh, which is where we are now, and promote American prosperity and growth. John? Uh, <laughs> you brought up the threat to democracy thing, which is the new, what that means is in the in, in the person of Donald Trump. Uh, and I think there's a great threat to democracy, but it's not just the person of Donald Trump. Um, and this is my big worry for the year, is that <clears throat> what, what democracy is about, the number one thing democracy is about is a peaceful transfer of power, conferring legitimacy on, on the winner. Uh, losers lick their wounds, know that they're not going to get <clears throat> hounded out of their jobs and businesses and thrown in jail, come back and try the next time. And the tit for tat of illegitimacy uh, from, from both sides is, uh, I think, the threat to democracy. And that comes from... Um, you know, misuse of the justice system to uh, hound political opponents. Now, Democrats will say, oh, it's terrible. Every single one of the 92 indictments is exactly justified. And Republicans look at that and say, this is turning into Pakistan, where you got to seize control of the Justice Department uh, uh, to, to win an election. It is clear to me that whoever, that, that the strategies that both parties have in place is to declare the winner of the election illegitimate which then justifies uh, horrible 
uh, misbehavior on all sorts of uh, reigns. And that's, that's the threat to democracy, not uh, one particular person and just vote Democrat and everything will be fine. And I think- hey, John, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, I really think that it, when you look at the way foreign threats jump onto this, our own self-destructive behavior, I mean, Russia doesn't care who wins our election next year, as long as a large number of Americans doubt the legitimacy of the of the result. You know, and and I think I think you know, in terms of weaponization of the judicial system, uh, judicial branch, Bill Barr's essay that he had in the Free Press last week, you know, said, "Hey, I oppose Trump, but I also oppose excluding him from ballots." Uh, was was really well crafted. Yeah, can you imagine how Trump supporters are going to go if they lose the election and he was excluded from the ballot? Uh, you know, they're going to say we was robbed <laughs> with perhaps some reason. And, and of course, uh, you know, there's there's uh, on the other side too. Trump, what he did after the last election was to declare it illegitimate, which emboldened his supporters in all sorts of horrible behavior. Which is what Nancy Pelosi did after 2016, right? Uh, I mean, so, it's been going, so, you, know, you know, after yeah. George Bush, the George Bush election, large sections of the Democratic Party still say that election was stolen uh, by the Supreme Court. And that's why the Supreme Court's illegitimate right. and all the structure's illegitimate. Uh, this is a very dangerous game to play, and it's escalating on both sides. So, Neil, James Carville famously said 32 years ago about the election, it's the economy, stupid. And it sounds like from HR and John are saying that, no, it's not the economy, it's Donald Trump and democracy. Can you, Neil, give me an example of an economic event either in America or around the globe that would turn attention away from the Trump democracy matter and make it more of a referendum on economics? Well, I think it is the economy in, in the sense that, that the Biden strategy was to run on Bidenomics. And then they noticed in the polling that despite objectively quite strong economic numbers in, in terms of the low unemployment rate and uh, and falling inflation rate, the pu public still says the economy sucks. Uh, and I think if the public continues to feel that the economy under Biden has been inferior to the economy under Trump, <clears throat> that will be a very significant reason uh, why Donald Trump could win. After all, if you just look at uh, a very interesting uh, measure which is uh, real, i.e. inflation-adjusted household uh, income, it flatlined from 1999 to 2016, rose 9% under Trump, and has gone down under Biden, uh, mainly because of inflation. So I still think it's about the economy, uh, this election, and the attempt to make it about democracy is partly a pivot away from a strategy that wasn't working uh, for the Biden campaign. And I would add. I would add to that um, the the remarkable sagacity of the American voter here. The economy is strong. Unemployment is low. We didn't have a recession. Things are things are about as they were in February 2020. Uh, and so, what's the complaining about? Well, uh, the Biden administration is is claiming credit for springtime. Basically, they they took over in January, and you know it got warmer, and said, look look how much warmer it got uh, while we were in charge. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Bidenomics consists of trillions of dollars down innumerable rat holes, a regulatory expansion like we've never seen. Um, this Trump protectionism, the one thing they seem to like about Trump is, you know, will uh, will ban Chinese electric vehicles. And uh, and, uh, you know, so what about the fact that uh, about carbon and, and everything's going to be made unions in the U.S.? People can see through that. Uh, they can see that these the actions of Bidenomics are are bad for the economy, even though the economy is reasonably good. So uh, you know you don't get to just take credit for the the return of summer. You have you take credit for your actions, and they can see these actions are not helpful. Hmm. HR. 
Well, I, you know, I think there could be an international incident, you know, obviously involving U.S. forces who are now committed in in the Middle East, uh, and and then also, you know, uh, th- th- that could lead to you know supply chain disruption, as we're already seeing in the Bab el Mandeb and, and the Suez Canal. But I think a you know flashpoint that is you know potentially much more dangerous even than Taiwan is in the South China Sea, and and after you know after the San Francisco summit, there was a little bit of a back off by, by the PLA on aggressive behavior there. But I think that there, there's really a, a high chance of, of an of an incident in the uh, in, in the South China Sea that might you know focus Americans uh, away from you know the the current issues under discussion and, and more toward national security. It's only the economy, stupid. If people have faith in the fundamental institutions of America, which they did in the 1990s, uh, but when people see um, you know the Republicans see the Justice Department being used to uh, protect Hunter Biden and kick Trump off ballots and try to put him in jail so he can't get reelected again. Uh, Democrats see, you know, uh, it, um, the the um, January sixth events and and they somehow they think of that as as an insurrection. Uh, and uh, w- when uh, people have lost faith in the FDA and the CDC and and the institutions of society, when the fundamental institutions of your country are in doubt, people care more about that than, um, you know, adjusted household income. Neil, I've seen pundits uh, say of a very unpopular choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump that this is the doom election. Uh, Please tell me that you copyrighted that word. Yeah, I wish I could claim that I I did. But of course, uh, uh, doom uh, is always going to be there. Uh, It's it's always good in the headline. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I don't get any royalties, uh, from this being the doom election, though I do hope sales of my book, uh, available, uh, from all good booksellers and paperback will benefit. There has to be some silver lining to this massive cloud. By the way, my view of the 2024 is very simple. Mm-hmm. It's a choice empire or Republic, uh, cause you can choose, uh, to strengthen the United States, uh, against its foreign enemies. If you vote for Donald Trump. I think that that you almost certainly achieve that, but you probably lose the Constitution along the way. Or you can vote for Biden or maybe somebody else that they switch in, uh, and you can probably save the Constitution, but you probably lose American primacy. So that's the choice as I see it. It's not a great great one to confront the voters with. Can you explain how you think Trump is the danger to the Constitution and also how you think that Republicans are more hawkish on defense than Democrats right now? So the, the key thing about... What Trump would offer is what I, I I would characterize as a credible madman theory. Uh, our adversaries were much more deterred by Donald Trump, uh, whether you look at Iran, Russia, or China, and their behavior. There, there's no question in my mind that he uh, credibly uh, worried them. He also made good decisions in his appointments, such as H.R. McMaster. They might not be such good decisions in the second Trump term, but if you want to, if you go around the world and ask. Uh, world leaders, uh, who intimidates you more, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? It's a it's a pretty clear uh, clear cut case. The problem is that uh, Donald Trump revealed himself, uh, and not only uh, on January sixth, twenty twenty one, but more generally as indifferent to constitutional norms. And uh, I think a re-election of Donald Trump uh, would signal a, a fundamental decay in the electorate's commitment to the Constitution. Uh, so that seems to me to be the fundamental problem of, of Trump's return, 
Uh, he's narrowly ahead with the prediction markets. Uh, he seems highly likely to get the nomination. If he gets the nomination uh, and Biden is the candidate, uh, it's going to be a very close run thing. But I think even with all the legal attacks, uh, there's going to be a substantial section of the public that says in the swing states, you know what, we're going to go with Trump. It, it, he's a, a stronger figure uh, than Joe Biden. Uh, and the other side, it's clear that the norms, the political norms of Washington, along not all of them great, you get plenty of bad ones, you get the deep state, you get administrative bureaucracy, but you get a fundamental uh, adherence to the Constitution and a retreat from American primacy with a Democratic candidate. In that sense, I think it's a very awful choice. And we can we can and should hope that between now and November, something will happen to make it something other than the choice of 2020. But at this point, my base case is Trump v. Biden, empire or republic. It is, and the choices begin next Monday in Iowa. And just think, guys, we're only 10 months away from this election. So I'm sure we'll be revisiting it. Let's move on to the lightning round. Lightning round. So I don't know if the three of you are fans of New Year's resolutions or not, but that can't stop us from making a few rank predictions. And let me begin with this question to the three of you. There are several world leaders uh, who begin 2024 on rather rocky footing. Joe Biden, who we've talked about, Bibi Netanyahu, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Zelensky. I'd like the three of you to tell me which of those four leaders is most likely to last past 2024 and which of those four is the least likely to survive 2024. Putin most likely, Netanyahu least likely. Okay, John. Uh, <laughs> uh, Putin seems to have some staying power. I guess Netanyahu works in a democracy, so it's harder. Okay, HR. Yeah, I, I agree with Neil, but I would say that the, those less likely uh, to survive twenty twenty four are Hamas's leaders. Can I put in a? There's one I hope survives. I'm, I'm really enjoying Argentina's new president, Javier Milei. Uh, follow him on on uh, YouTube. He gives better economics lectures than any economist I've ever seen. They, they, they translate the Spanish down below you. He's an absolute delight. I'm sure the forces against him are are arrayed. So good luck to him. But at least as far as explaining economics clearly. Uh, uh, to uh, to uh, to his electorate, I, I think it's it's been fun to watch. I, I agree hope, with that, and I hope he survives. Is he MAGA? Make Argentina great again? Uh, that's he, he actually that that's what his policies will do if he gets to put them in. Okay. Second lightning round question: Which of the current wars of the current wars in Israel and Ukraine, which is more likely to be ongoing at the end of twenty twenty four? Both. 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 Okay. So no scenario that either one can end in 2024. It's highly unlikely that these uh, situations are resolved this year. You, you could say you could say that the the, the war uh, in the Middle East has been going on since 1979. Okay, the or 1935. <laughs> the online publication Politico got in the prediction business and it offered the following four predictions. I want you guys to tell me which of these four is most likely. Prediction number one: Russian mothers revolt over the high Russian casualty rate. Prediction two, war breaks out with China. Prediction three, 1968-like riots at major party conventions here in America. And number four, signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. They're terrible predictions. They're all incredibly unlikely. Agreed. And, and the, the thing that happens is the one that you don't expect. HR? 
Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of predictions you could make uh, that, that are that are much more likely than any of these. But I think there will be growing opposition to Putin in Russia, because I do think that even though the economy is doing OK now, and I, I defer to, to Neil and and John on this, uh, all the all the fixes that Putin's put in is he's running out of, you know, and and uh, the casualty figures are pretty, pretty astounding. Uh, and there have been some, you know, some protests. So I think of all those. The first is likely. Now, will that be enough to unseat him as, as Kotkin tells us, right? You know, he said, hey, you know, authoritarian regimes don't need to be that strong. They just need to be stronger than the organized opposition. So uh, so it may it may not it may not result in a change of government. Uh, but I do think there's going to be growing opposition to Putin. They fall when they lose the will. You know, North Korea's uh, economy is doing a whole lot worse than Russia's economy. And they're still in power. Yeah. Right. The more interesting prediction might have been signs of artificial general intelligence. Uh, there, there are certainly people in the AI world who would love us uh, to find those signs, uh, Sam Altman among them. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, bet any money on AGI in 2024. Yeah, we, we, It's the hangover morning of the uh, AI thing and people are sort of discovering uh, it's not as quite as snazzy as it really cool, but not quite as snazzy as it looked. Question for the panel, 2024 is a leap year, meaning there's an extra day in February. If the three of you had nothing planned for February the 29th, how would you spend it? If only I looked at my calendar and I'm already committed to giving a lecture that day in London. So I would like my February 29th back, but I don't seem likely to get it. Uh-huh. John, is February 29th flying weather? Uh, I, I hope so, or skiing weather, whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm an economist. I always optimize. So... Uh, if, I, if I'm living my life right, I would spend February 29th exactly the way I spend every other day. <laughs> you sure? How would you spend the 29th? Hey, I'm really looking forward to not writing a book and, <laughs> and, more, and, and more time and, and, and more time with grandkids. So I would allocate it to grandchildren. Okay. Final question. King Charles has started a new royal tradition, Neil. You're probably aware he is spending January in Scotland. Question for the panel. Which of you would choose to vacation in Scotland in January, especially if you had Caribbean islands at your disposal? Well, I've heard many people pledge to uh, undergo dry January. This is wet January. If you opt for Scotland in January, you are choosing to be very wet indeed. Uh, this might be a bet on climate change, though. Uh, after all, uh, King Charles has long been uh, concerned about the environment, and maybe he's seeing what the rest of us are missing that Scotland is going to cease to be a rain-soaked uh, bog and will become one of the great vacation destinations of the future. Maybe that's the thinking here. Ah, John? Well, not, uh, no matter how much you think of climate change as a urgent catastrophe right now, it's not going to happen during this year's vacation by uh, Prince Charles. This shows you, you know, what you have to do if you're a, even if you're the king of king of England, what you have to do in order to buck up political support among those troublesome Scots up north, rather than go to somewhere nice for your for your well deserved vacation. HR, you're an SUP guy. I imagine you're going to the Caribbean. You're probably building a palace in the Caribbean. <laughs> hey, I do prefer the warmer climates, but I do, you know, I do enjoy Scotland. But I'm going to wait for the Six Nations rugby tournament before before I visit. See you there, HR. <laughs> All right. So there you go, John. The show begins. First show of the year, rugby reference already. <laughs> but we didn't bring up Arsenal soccer, did we, Neil? Oh, oh, please don't intrude on private grief. To be continued. Gentlemen, um, 
Thanks for coming on the first show of the year. We'll be doing another show uh, later this month, and I'd like to alert our viewers to this being what we call a mailbag show, meaning we'll be taking your questions and reading them. So if you have a question for Neil, you have a question for John, a question for HR, a question for the group, send it to us and send it to the following web address, which is hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows. Let me repeat that as hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows. Uh, we're recording again later this month, so start sending them in now and let us uh, get to them. Uh, we look forward to your questions. They're always great, and uh, it's a fun show for us to do. So with that, we're going to conclude today's uh, proceedings. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, hope your 2024 is off to a good start, and thanks for watching. We'll see you soon. Which means I have the great honor of introducing the stars of our show, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them. That would include the economist Neil Ferguson, excuse me, the historian Neil Ferguson. Sorry, Neil, off to a rough start in 2024 already. 